Why prophecy? Why prophecy? Well, you'd think that's a stupid question to ask. I mean, we're here for prophecy. Um, but um, prophecy seems to be less and less popular. It's amazing. Uh, you would think everybody would be interested in prophecy. The Bible, this book, is about 30% prophecy. I'm sure you all know that. Uh, God went to a great deal of trouble to give us prophecy. Uh, he inspired his prophets. It's down in writing. He's preserved his word. Uh, it must be very important to him. Uh, let's just uh, read a couple of scriptures. Uh, first of all, First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. These are all verses that you know very well. It's giving us a recital of and the qualifications of some of David's mighty men. And it says, And of the children of Issachar, men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Prophecy gives us an understanding of the times. It's not just something you study, but it tells you what you ought to do in those times. Uh, then if we turn to uh, Luke chapter 12, and Jesus is talking to the people, he says, verse 54, he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites. You know, sometimes people think that I'm a little bit straightforward or hard-nosed or whatever. I don't talk like Jesus talked. He called people fools. And here he calls them hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern this time? Why don't you know the time in which you live? Why don't you realize the Messiah is in your midst, the one who has been prophesied? Why don't you know on the road to Emmaus, he said, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Prophecy is tremendously important. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for prophecy. Um, and yet, as I said, I, I find it staggering. Let me just read you a couple of things. U.S. News and World Report uh, just had, maybe some of you are aware of it. I don't get these magazines, but I do a lot of flying, and they have them on United Airlines, and that's where I read them. Um, and they just had a major uh, article dealing with prophecy and with the end times and so forth. And I want to just quote a little bit from it. Uh, professors at such bastions of premillennialism as Dallas Theological Seminary. This is U.S. News and World Report giving this report. Uh, Moody... Bible Institute in Chicago and Wheaton College in Wisconsin, Illinois, recently have raised strong objections 
to the literal interp interpretation of some apocalyptic texts and to the intense search for signs of the times and current events. How about that? We are seeing prophecy fulfilled before our eyes. Chuck said we're living in the most exciting time in history. And these professors, Moody, Dallas Theological Seminary, Wheaton College and so forth, which a U.S. News and World Report calls the bastions of premillennialism and of evangelicalism, they are telling us you're wasting your time trying to find some correlation between what the Bible says and events that are happening in the world around you. I find that just staggering. Then it goes on, the article goes on and says, even at Jerry Falwell's Fundamentalist Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, New Testament professor D. Brent Sandy challenges the notion that details of, the future, uh, details of future events can be extracted from the Bible. What? I thought prophecy was about future events. I thought prophecy was to tell us what is going to come to pass. And it was to give us <clears throat> the signs and the evidence so we would recognize it when it happened. And these men are saying... No, that's not what it's for after all. Uh, Sandy writes in the evangelical journal Christianity Today. You want to read some heresy? Read that one. Uh, he writes in the evangelical journal Christianity Today, quote, um, he says, prophecy's primary purpose is simply to assure readers that God is going to accomplish his plans in unique and amazing ways. You've got to be kidding. What he, he says, it doesn't really happen, so don't try to look around in the world and find any correlation between what God says and what happens. Well, that would lead you to believe that God doesn't know what he's talking about. But we've got some kind of a fictitious uh, parable about future events that doesn't really happen. But it tells us that God will fulfill his plans in miraculous ways. I mean, how empty-headed can you get? I'm sorry. I don't want to insult these people. But it sounds like uh, neo-orthodoxy. It sounds like, you know, skepticism to me. What I find amazing is the preposterous contradictions uh, that these men come up with. How symbolic stories of fictitious events that pretend to foretell the future but never come to pass can, quote, assure readers that God is going to accomplish his plans in unique and amazing ways is beyond my comprehension. So, prophecy is vital. It's important. God gave, us, gave it to us, 30% of the Bible. But it's being denied. And we're kind of a strange bunch of people here at a prophecy conference, wasting our time imagining that there's some correlation between what the Bible says and, and coming events, according to these great scholars. Now, I want you to know also, prophecy is unique to this book. You will not find it in the Koran. You won't find it in the... And I just have gone through the Koran on my computer, word searches and everything, because I... By the grace of God, just finished a, another book uh, just a few days ago. In fact, I got three hours sleep night before last, before we made our trip here, going over the galleys of the book. It's called A Cup of Trembling, and I think that's one of my topics uh, tomorrow evening, I guess. 
And I'm going to have the Muslims after me this time, I'm afraid. But everybody else is, so we want to... Well, but I can tell you, there's no prophecy in the Quran. There's no prophecy in the Hindu Vedas. There's no prophecy in the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, the Book of Mormon. Anywhere you want to search, you will not find it. It's unique to this book. That ought to tell you something about prophecy. Now, and I'm not going to get into this in detail because I've dealt with this in books and talked about it other times, but just kind of a little background summary. There are, as you know, there are two major topics of prophecy in the Bible. Israel, number one. Um, it's, I've got another quote here for you. It's just, I, it gets more astonishing. Uh, we're living in exciting days. We're living in astonishing days. Listen to this one. This was a poll of a thousand American adults conducted last December, 2nd through 4th. Um, it revealed that 59% of Americans believe the world will come to an end. 60% believe the Bible should be taken literally when it speaks of a final judgment day. 49% believe it should be taken literally when it speaks of the Antichrist. 44% when it speaks of the Battle of Armageddon and the rapture of the church. It's interesting. While a surprising 53% believe that some world events this century fulfill Bible prophecy. So they don't agree with these professors out there. So you say... Wow, great, they're with us. Wait a minute. Of the latter group, only 6% see the establishment of Israel as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. What? That is God's great sign to the world. <clears throat> Often said, Israel is God's time clock. <clears throat> so, we have two major topics. Israel and the Messiah, who comes to Israel and through Israel to the world. Now, purposes of prophecy. Most prophecy has already been fulfilled. Why prophecy? Most of it has already been fulfilled. It is the great proof of the, of the existence of God and that this book is God's Word. And I've given talks about that and written books about it so we won't go into those details. But you have a verse up here. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. What does that mean? Does that mean that some of us, we're in this prophetic denomination and other ones are in that prophetic denomination and we're arguing among ourselves and we're saying, but i got a prophecy that's more sure than your prophecy. That's not what it means. Peter has just told you of his great experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw Jesus transform. Moses and Elijah come along and talk with Jesus. He hears it. He hears God speak with an audible voice and you'd think, wow, what an experience. I mean, that's got to be enough to prove anything. And he says, no. The more sure word is prophecy. That's what proves. That's what we rely upon. And then you could go back to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. You remember, we won't take time to turn to it, but God says there, he says, I am the God of prophecy. I am God, there is none other, and let me tell you how I will prove my existence. I will prove my existence by telling you what will happen before it happens and watching over history to make certain that it does happen. And in Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, he says to Israel, You are my witnesses, 
to yourselves and to the world that I am God. How are they his witnesses? Because we got 144,000 Jews running around the world saying that God exists? No. 30% of the Jews in Israel today claim to be atheists. A lot of New Agers. You've got uh, very few Orthodox and they've got their problems. And then you've got the Reformed and, and, and the Conservative and so forth. Um, they're not really believers. Most of them don't even believe the promises of God. They're back in that land. It's tradition, you know, like fiddler on the roof. Uh, they don't really believe in God. Then how are they his witnesses to the world? They're his witnesses to the world because of what he said, what happened to them, and that it came to pass. And there's no one who can be an atheist. Nobody can be an agnostic. And, and I'm not going to give you the verses, but I'll tell you very, very quickly, and, and you know them as well as I do. Number one, he promised them land. It's called the promised land. And you've got the leaders of Israel today who are bartering that land for peace. Put it in quotes because it's not real peace. And they're bartering it away uh, to an enemy that has sworn the destruction of Israel and has never apologized and never changed. And what that enemy is doing is gaining, with false promises, gaining, and we'll talk more about this later, gaining territory within Israel from which to launch their final destructive assault. And yet, the leaders of Israel are bartering away land, land that was never to be sold, God said, never to be given away, land that he had given to them, and they're bartering it away for peace. They're betraying the cause of Israel. And furthermore, they don't even believe. But that has all been foretold in the Scriptures. But he gave them the promised land. He brought them into the land. When he brought them into the land... Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 63, for example, he warned them, if you disobey my voice, I will cast you out of that land. And then it becomes very specific and very miraculous. In verse 64, he says, I won't just throw you out next door. I will scatter you to every nation on the face of this earth. It happened. We call them the wandering Jew. They are everywhere on the face of this earth. And then you go back to verse 37 and many other verses that we could quote. God says, I will make you a proverb an astonishment. You will become a byword, a cursing, a hissing. They will hate you. They will persecute you. They will kill you. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads throughout this world. Anti-Semitism. It is, I mean, we've got many minority groups. I mean, I think that bald men with beards ought to have special privileges, you know. Uh, but uh, we, have, we have all kinds of minority groups who feel that they have been betrayed and, and abused and so forth. And it's true in many cases. But I'll tell you, there is no one, no one who has been treated like the Jews. Nobody. I mean, you just go down through history and they... Why? Why, why anti-Semitism? Very simple. Because God said, in you and in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. It is through Israel that the Messiah will come. And if Satan could destroy Israel, there would be no Messiah. And so he has been out to destroy these people. And the pogroms, the, the, I mean the Holocaust, uh, but that's only part of a down through history. The popes made it the death penalty for a Jew to intermarry. The popes put them in their ghetto, first of all, and made them wear a badge. And Hitler said, I'm only doing what the church has done for 1,500 years only. I'm going to finish the job. And we can go on down through history. And you know what has happened to them. The slaughter, the torture, and the attempt to wipe them out. God said it. He said it would happen to them. But God said, in spite of all of that, I will preserve you, an identifiable ethnic national group of people. I will not let you be destroyed. Because, and he did it. I mean, it's astonishing. 
2,500 years since the Babylonian captivity, and these people remain. And you could go to uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 35, for example. God says, as long as the sun is in the sky, the stars are in the sky, the tides are at work, Israel will not cease from being a nation before me forever. The church is not Israel. That's another lie that's come in today. Israel is a separate entity and God has plans, purposes and plans for them that cannot be nullified, that cannot be frustrated by any human agency. And he says, I'm going to preserve you an identifiable ethnic national group of people because in the last days I will bring you back into your own land. A miracle. 2,500 years since the Babylonian captivity. And there they are and we've seen it today. Couldn't happen. Never happened to anybody else. It, it happened to Israel. You know, the people who design these pulpits, they don't design them for, for anybody who has many things. You know, I've got all kinds of things and I brought up very few today and we still probably won't get to them. But anyway, they need a bigger lip on here because everything just falls down. But anyway, um, and God said, I will bring you back into your land in the last days. He did it. Then it becomes even more remarkable and I think that's our topic tomorrow evening, a cup of trembling. He says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling for all the nations on this earth. How could that possibly happen? Jerusalem's a little nothing place. The, the, all, the whole land of Israel is one-sixth of one percent of the territory that the Arabs possess. The Arabs have the oil. They have the wealth. Jerusalem's got nothing. They've got no great hydroelectric plants. They've got no great mountains. They've got no great harbors. They've got, I mean, they don't have, have oil or, or, or gold or diamonds or, or anything. Why Israel? Uh, is it true today? <laughs> A world of 5.6 billion people has their eyes on Jerusalem knowing that the next world war when it breaks out will break out over Jerusalem. Why? The Pope wants it to be an international center for peace. The, the nations of the world, well, I don't want to get into my next topic, but the nations of the world refuse to let Jerusalem be the capital of Israel. They have the Knesset there. And they insist. You, you, uh, well, I've got, to, I've got to drop that topic for the moment. But anyway, it's a fulfillment. Fulfillment of prophecy before our very eyes. And we'll go on and document to you why. Why is Jerusalem a cup of trembling? Because they're not patsies. You can't just push them over because their army could probably defeat any standing army on the face of this earth today. Amazing what they can do. I mean, we, we made a mess of it. It was a debacle out there in the Iranian desert, you remember? <clears throat> they took some of our hostages and we went to try to get them back and we left wreckage all over and, and made a mess. They took Israel, Jewish hostages down into the heart of Africa. They went after them and they brought them back. <clears throat> And they lost one man in the operation. Iraq, in what was it, 1981? They're going to have a nuclear arms program. And what does Israel do? They sent a plane with a penetrating bomb that went right through the hard shell of that thing. And they sent a plane following it with a guided bomb that went right through the same hole and blew it up. You don't mess with Israel. <clears throat> You had a big dogfight, about 200 advanced Soviet MiGs flown by Syrian and some Soviet pilots went down in flames and the Jews lost two or three. You don't mess with Israel. And God said in that chapter, I will make Jerusalem, I will make Israel like a fire in wood that can devour the nations all around them. 
Did it come to pass? It came to pass. And Israel is a cup of trembling for the nations, Jerusalem specifically, for the nations of the world today. Well, but that's not my, my topic. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a... <clears throat> A little bit of a summary. <clears throat> and then, what did they say? <laughs> Only 6% see the establishment of Israel as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Amazing. The blindness. The blindness. God said, I'm going to send them a great delusion to believe the lie. You can't explain it any other way. Well, what's another purpose of, <clears throat> of, of, um, of prophecy then? Not only to identify God's people to prove that God exists by what he does to them and the fulfillment of it, to prove that this book, the Bible, is his word, but to identify the Messiah. And so you have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy specifically telling you how you would know who the Messiah is when he comes. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, you know, and it goes on and on. And again, we've gone into great detail on that. And you know the many, many prophecies. You cannot explain it away. Even the day that he would ride into Jerusalem, on that donkey, 483 years to the day, 69 weeks of years from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2 gives you the date of that. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Longimanus, and uh, that was Artaxerxes ruled from 465 to 425 B.C., so we know that was 445 B.C. It was the month of Nisan. He doesn't say the day of it. That means the first day of the month. So you have a date in the Bible. Nisan first, 445 B.C., and from that time, until the day that the Messiah rides into Jerusalem and is hailed by the, by the mob uh, as the Messiah would be 69 weeks of years, 483 years to the day. And it happens. And you can say to your Jewish friends today, and I ask some of them, what are you going to do about that? I mean, it's too late for the Messiah to come now. It said he would come then. And it said that the temple would have to be here because Malachi 3.1 says that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. But it said that the temple would be destroyed and the city would be destroyed after he came. And that he would be cut off. He would be killed. Um, I mean, you can go on in detail after detail after detail. The 30 pieces of silver. God speaking in Zechariah through his prophet says, If you think it well, count out my price. What do you think I'm worth? And he's speaking sarcastically. He says, So they counted out for me a goodly price. That I was priced at of the people of Israel. 30 pieces of silver and I said cast it down in the temple and let them buy a field to bury potters cast it to, to, to bury strangers cast it to the potter in, in the temple of the Lord and so it happened and we could go on and on and on and you know the details you, nobody can be an atheist nobody can be an agnostic nobody can deny that this book is inspired of God he has given us the details about Israel about the Messiah and so forth uh, so that's a major purpose of prophecy. Most prophecies have been fulfilled, folks. <laughs> We're going to have a prophecy conference. We're not just talking about um, the fu future events yet. Of course, all prophecy was future when it was prophesied. But we live way down here in history now, and much of it, most of it, has already been fulfilled, and it is absolute proof of the existence of God, of the Word of God, who the Messiah is, who the people of God are, the place that Israel has, and that gives us great confidence that the prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled, specifically uh, as they have been foretold. Well, then, next purpose of prophecy, obviously, is prophecy foretells the future. It's going to tell us about things 
that will come to pass. Prophecy assures us that God has a plan. He's not caught by surprise. I don't know how many people we have here, younger people who may have studied with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and I don't know whether they still teach this and to what extent they do around the world, but they had a teaching uh, moral government. Gordon Olson, I think, was the originator of it, and, and it was taught by YWAM for years, and probably still is to some extent. But God doesn't know what's going to happen. He's like the rest of us. And when something comes along, he's got to quickly react. No, God is not reacting to what's happening. He knows what's going to happen. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning. Uh, he knows what will happen. He's already told you what will happen. And he has already even told us what he's going to do about it. So prophecy lets us know that God has a plan for history. He's in charge. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be careful uh, because people say, well, God is still on the throne. Well, he is on the throne. But he's, he was on the throne when Satan, rebelled, when Satan rebelled, wasn't he? Right in his presence. So when you say God is in charge, he knows what's going to happen, that means nothing can happen that he doesn't allow to happen. But that doesn't mean that he is the instigator of everything that happens, that he is behind everything that happens. He's not the instigator of rape and murder and robbery and sin and of Adam and Eve's rebellion and so forth, but he knew that it would happen, and he has already prepared uh, for what would happen. So, it's, I think, a forgotten principle of Scripture how to use prophecy. We use prophecy. We use prophecy, believe it or not, one of the major purposes of prophecy is so we can preach the gospel. Did you ever hear that one? Wow. That's how Paul preached the gospel. Romans chapter 1. Uh, well, let's turn there. I can quote these verses, but it's better if you look at them yourself. Although you can probably quote them too, most of you. Paul, Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Sometimes you talk to people and they, they get a little upset and they say, you're insulting my church or you're offending my religion. I say... I feel sorry for you if this is your church or your religion. What does God have to say about this thing? <clears throat> this is the gospel. Paul says, <clears throat> pardon me, Paul says, I didn't make this up. What do you think I'm preaching? I mean, why do you think that the, that the um, uh, Bereans could check Paul out from the scriptures? Because he quoted the scriptures. He said, this is the gospel of God. He has promised it before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's what we're talking about. Jesus um, uh, didn't invent Christianity. Paul didn't invent it. It's the full, Christianity is the fulfillment of what the prophet said. And if it's not that, then we've got nothing. This is one book, as, as uh, Chuck was telling us. It's an integrated system written by many different authors, over 40, who didn't know one another over a period of 1,500 years or so. And yet, the cohesiveness, the continuity, the perfection of this book. So Paul says, this is the gospel of God that he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's all about his son Jesus of Nazareth, made of the seed of David according to the flesh and so forth, and talks about the resurrection. That was all foretold 
It's all been foretold. That's the way Peter, you remember? How did Peter use prophecy on the day of Pentecost? This is that which the prophets foretold. And not only about, about the signs and the wonders and so forth, but uh, he referred to the scriptures concerning uh, the prophecies that David made about the Messiah. Okay? In chapter 3, well, let's, let's just look at it a little bit. Uh, Acts chapter 3. He does the same thing. This is something that we must get back to, I believe. Verse, verse 24, he's been talking to the, uh, his second huge audience there in Jerusalem. Verse 24, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after as many as have spoken have likewise foretold in these days and you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers and, and so forth. It's really exciting when you look, just, let's just take a little quick trip through the book of Acts and, and see uh, how, how this is used. Let's go to chapter 10. When, when Peter presents the gospel, he opens the door to the Gentiles and notice what he says, verse 43. To him, that is the Messiah that he's testifying about, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. He's referring them again uh, to the prophets. Go over to chapter 15. They had that dispute, you remember, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, verse 15, To this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. And we won't read that. We won't go into the details there. But go to chapter 17. And Paul goes into the synagogue. There was a synagogue of the Jews there in Thessalonica. And verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. you see his modus operandi? It says, as his manner was. That's the way Paul operated. And he went into the synagogue, he opened their own scriptures, and he said, look what the prophets said about the Messiah. This is what they said. And you know that it was all fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and you cannot deny he is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And if you don't believe in him, you are rebels because God has given you all the evidence that anybody could ever ask for. Uh, and even more than you need. And you go on down. Uh, let's take verse 11. Well, we already quoted that and Chuck quoted that. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Go to chapter 18, verse 4. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. What is he reasoning with? He's reasoning from the Scriptures. Verse 19. He came to Ephesus, himself entered in the synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews. He's reasoning with them out of the Scriptures. Now it's talking, verse 28, is talking about Apollos. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. So, what is, what is prophecy for? It's to identify the Messiah when he comes. And so that we can preach the gospel. So that we can prove from the scriptures that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. There are, look, there are no prophecies for Muhammad. 
There are no prophecies for Buddha, for Confucius, for Zoroaster, for Joseph Smith, for anybody else. The prophecies are about Jesus of Nazareth, the, the, the Messiah of Israel. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And we need to awaken to this fact and use this. Uh, and do as Apollos did, mightily persuade from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, prophecy foretells the future, as we mentioned. It assures us that God has a plan. It lets us know what's going to happen. It's the next thing. It lets us know what is going to happen. I mean, the, in, in Matthew 24, they asked Jesus for the signs. What would be the signs of your coming? He gave them signs. Why would he give them signs? If as these professors say, oh, well, don't try to correlate anything that's a Bible prophecy with present and current events. I mean, that's insanity. Jesus said, and he said, fools, no, hypocrites. You can, you can tell what's going to happen with the weather because of the way the sky looks. Why can't you tell the times in which you live? I've given you, my prophets have told you, you ought to know where you are in history. And so one of the major purposes then again of prophecy is to let us know where we are in history. Let us know what's going to happen. So we can be like the men of Issachar who knew the times of Israel and knew what Israel ought to do. Now, what does it tell us about these times? Oh, it tells us about that great last days revival that you read about, uh, hear about on TBN or whatever. No, it doesn't. I don't find that in the Bible. Search it out. It tells us about apostasy. Now, I don't want to be a doomsayer and I don't want to get you all discouraged, but we have to be truthful. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does it tell us about the days in which we live? It says, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we do miracles in your name? I mean, we touched people, whew, they fell over and we waved our coats and I'm not trying to point out anybody, but uh, and, no, and I, and I mean that seriously because I can't judge a person's heart. But Jesus said, I will say to you, I never knew you, never knew you. My Bible doesn't tell me that the great need we have in the last days is signs and miracle ministry and signs and wonders. It tells me, it, it warns me about false prophets and false sign workers and supposed miracle workers. I mean, Jesus warned us about that, didn't he? Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5, when they asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus, the first thing he said was, don't let anybody deceive you. The nearness of my return will be heralded by a growing spiritual deception. And it would involve what? False prophets and false Christ, verse, verse uh, 5. In verse 11, he says, many false prophets shall arise and shall many false Christs and shall deceive many. Jesus is talking about in the last days, isn't that science reigning supreme? We've got men walking on the moon and everybody is a skeptic and nobody believes in, in religion or spirituality anymore. No. It will be a time of an awakening and exploding interest in spirituality, but it will be false. It will be deception to lead people astray. And so in verse 24, he says, many false prophets shall arise, many false Christs. 
and shall do what seems to be signs and wonders so that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. And Paul tells us about it specifically. Second uh, Timothy 3 verse 1 begins um, in the last days. Dangerous times will come. Why dangerous? Because of the deception. Men will be lovers of their own selves. Wow, I could launch off onto that. Self-love like you have never seen it before. The world has always been, human beings are narcissistic, they're self-centered, they're selfish, that's our problem. But never before have you had it like you have it today. We have seminars in the church, in evangelical churches, teaching you that you've got to learn to love yourself. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire that's already out of control. That's not our problem that we need to, we need to get and learn to love ourselves. Well, didn't Jesus say, love your neighbors yourself? So don't you see, you've got to learn to love yourself before you love it. Wait a minute. Was Jesus saying, love your neighbor like you don't love yourself yet? Was Jesus saying, love your neighbor like you hate yourself, but, uh, but you've got to first of all get a seminar to learn how to love yourself? No, Jesus was correcting self-love. He was saying, what do you do in the morning when you get up? You brush your teeth and comb your hair, feed yourself, clothe yourself. How about giving a little of the attention to your neighbor that you give to yourself? That's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't teaching self-love. He was correcting self-love. He was saying your problem is you are self-centered. Now, how about giving a little bit of this uh, to your neighbor? And you know, you've probably heard me many times and the, the person said, yeah, but I do hate myself. I got such bad acne. I'm so fat. I'm so skinny. I'm just so ugly. I just hate myself. No, you don't hate yourself. Oh, I do hate myself. Well, were you ever upset because somebody you hated was ugly? If you hated yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. Don't give me this nonsense. <laughs> I mean, now, now you, 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 you may hate your job. You may hate your salary. You may hate the way people respond to you. You may hate the clothes you have to wear or whatever. But that only proves you love yourself. If you, if you, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you got a lousy salary. You'd be glad people made fun of you or whatever. Don't give me this nonsense. Uh, our problem is not that we hate ourselves, we love ourselves. We're self-centered and we became that way with the fall. But Paul said, the last days, dangerous times will come. Men will be lovers of self like you have never seen it before. Well, let's turn there quickly to Second Timothy chapter 3 and see if it doesn't read like our world today. Verse 2, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. I mean, I'm sorry, but we got Christian psychologists out there who say, no, our problem is we're not proud. We've got a raging epidemic of low self-esteem. Bad self-image. That, yeah, that, was, that was Satan's fault, wasn't it? I mean, his problem. Uh, don't be too hard on Lucifer when he rebelled in the presence of God. You understand he was raised in a dysfunctional family. And, and, and he, had a, he had a bad self-image. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that we're being taught today. And it literally foretold this. Paul foretold it. Don't be discouraged about the days in which you're living, folks. I, I get really discouraged sometimes. I say, Lord, I'm just going to quit. It seems like every book I write sells less than the one before. The more I try to point out to people what's going on, the more I'm hated. And, and the more the delusion just rages. And people that you looked up to, that you thought, understood the Word of God, they've got such lunatic ideas that you just say, forget it. Uh, 
But prophecy is to tell us, don't be discouraged. That's what God said would happen. Hang in there and keep presenting the truth of the Word of God without natural affection, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of and, and I'm sorry, folks, I don't think that means denying the power to touch people and have them fall over. And we'll talk about that when we get to God's triumph in Christ. I don't think that's the great need of the day is some miracle uh, ministry. Uh, I mean, nobody saw miracles like the children of Israel. You want to talk about miracles. The Red Sea opens in front of them. They got a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them step by step and to tell them where to go. And they hear God speak with an audible voice from the top of a mountain. And they got manna every day and, and so forth. You want to talk about miracles. And the Bible says there was no generation so rebellious and unbelieving as that generation of people. We don't need great miracles. What we need is a change in our hearts. To bow before this one of whom we sang, How Great Thou Art. Uh, and uh, he says, having a form of godliness. You've got some really fantastic forms of godliness out there. A big show, miracles and revival and so forth. And people laughing themselves silly. And I don't want to get off into that. I don't want to offend any of you. But I think what we need is tears and repentance. Uh, and then he says, verse 8, Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Ooh, that's what we need. Truth. Truth. Doctrine. But he goes on in the next chapter and says, The day will come when they won't in the unity of the faith when we give up our silly doctrinal demands. Doctrine doesn't unite, it divides. We've got to give up our doctrinal demands. Wait a minute. John writes in his second epistle, Anybody comes to you and does not bring this doctrine of Christ, you don't even receive him into your house. And you certainly don't bid him Godspeed. That's how important doctrine is. It's the container of truth. And if we don't believe the truth, we will be given a strong delusion to believe the lie. And Jesus said it's only the truth that sets free. So we've been told about these days so that we wouldn't be discouraged, so we would recognize uh, some of the false things that are going on out there. False things that are going on out there. Um, I just brought one sample today. This is all about one sample. Uh, this is a book, Discovering the Laws of Life. John Marsh Templeton. Let me give you some quotes out of this book. Just a few, quickly. Behind this book is my belief that the basic principles for leading a sublime life may be derived from any religious tradition, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and others, as well as Christian. We have the power to create whatever we need in our life. I'm quoting from the book now. And this power, which lies within us, is the power of the mind. There is a law of life that can be stated in these words. Thoughts held in the mind will reproduce in the outer world after their kind. Now, if you know anything about occultism, you know that's right at the very heart of it. Now, before I read you some more quotes, let me tell you who has endorsed this book. Well, first of all, this is a Xerox from the back cover of April 24, 1994, Christianity Today, advertising this book. Praising it will inspire millions of readers and listing a number of religious Christian leaders who have endorsed the book, okay? Well, before I tell you about some of them, let's go on and read a little bit more out of this book. 
I'm quoting again. Astronauts traveled into outer space and did not bring back any evidence of heaven. And whereas drills had penetrated the earth, they'd found oil, not hell, in the depths. Spiritual theorists are inclined to conceive, well, we had to change our ideas, and now we've got to con- conceive of heaven and hell as states of mind. Through our choices and attitudes, we create our own heaven or hell right here on earth. And the only place we can find heaven is in our own hearts. Well, Billy Graham says, truly a legend in our time. I'm reading off of the, what do they call this? The leaf, the fly leaf of the cover. A legend in our time. John Templeton understands that the real measure of a person's success in life is not financial accomplishment, but moral integrity and inner character. How can you have moral integrity and inner character without God? You can't possibly have it. He draws, in this book, he draws upon a variety of sources, including the Bible. Isn't that nice? He also goes to the Bible. Well, that ought to be enough then for us to feel he's on our side. He not only draws from Buddha and Confucius and so forth, but he also draws from the Bible. Isn't that lovely? To reveal the moral and spiritual principles which have shaped his own life and work. Of course, you have other endorsers, Norman Vincent Peale. He called John Mark Templeton. Remember, he came up with the Templeton Prize, which Chuck Colson just received a couple of years ago. The purpose of the Templeton Prize is to promote an understanding and appreciation of all of the religions of the earth. Would you take a prize like that? I wouldn't take a prize like that. I wouldn't want to be involved. I wouldn't want to be associated with promoting an understanding and appreciation of all of the religions uh, of, of this earth. Uh, but Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the foreword, he's gone now. He knows better. Um, he said, and we, you know, and I don't say that facetiously. I, I, I say, Lord, it, it, it frightens me to think of standing before you, and I'm going to give an account for every word that I've said or written. He called him the greatest layman of the Christian Church in our time. That's what Norman Vincent Peale said about this man. Let me read on just a couple other quotes. He says. Our innate goodness is an essential fact of our existence. When we perceive this truth, we will experience heaven on earth. See, the problem is, you've been getting this negative stuff from preachers who preach repentance and sin and so forth. And what you've got to realize is you are innately good. Well, it goes on. When our actions arise spontaneously from the goodness of our being, we find peace and the presence of God within us. Be honest, be true. Love all parts of yourself. The Godhood within you, the goodness within you is in a state of becoming perfect. Well, I don't need to quote more out of this book. This is an abomination to God. Uh, Now, you had him on the front cover of Possibilities magazine, Robert Schuller's magazine, uh, John Marsh Templeton. They've been associated for a long time. The major article was an interview with him. And the interviewer asked... So what do you, because he's a, he runs a fund of about $30 billion. Uh, he's a very successful Wall Street money manager. Mr. Templeton, what do you consider to be the single most important factor contributing to your success? Well, he says, probably my concept of reality. Over the years, I've been convinced that nothing exists except God. It's pantheism. He's a promoter of religious science, science of mind. Here's how it works. God is good and God is all. Therefore, all is good. And if you see something out there that looks like sin, sickness, disease, suffering, death, it doesn't exist. It's a figment of your mind because you become a negative thinker. And what you need to do is become a positive thinker and you will transform your mind. That's what all these people teach, whether it's uh, Schuller 
or, or Norman Vincent Peale or whatever, and I'm going to run out of time, so I've got to stop uh, going into that. Going into that. And then we have an editorial in Christianity Today, Christian McCarthyism, by Philip Yancey. And he says, everywhere I turn, it seems I hear Christians under attack. Not from Muslims and so forth, but from fellow Christians. And then they begin to, he begins to name some people. Tony Campolo. Oh, how he's been maligned. Wait a minute. Tony Campolo says, goodness and godness are one and the same. And Jesus was God because he was completely man. I'm, I'm sorry, manness and godness are one and the same. And Jesus was, complete, was God because he was completely man. And he was man because he was completely God. I mean, I could just give you a list of his heresies. But he doesn't acknowledge them. We shouldn't attack. You see, we live in a day when they will not endure sound doctrine and you cannot correct anyone. Paul, Paul wrote, he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, let the prophets speak two or three by course and let the others judge. They, he commended, the Bible commends the Bereans for checking Paul out. But you can't check anybody out now. It's called Christian McCarthyism. He talks about Karen Maines, why her career was ruined uh, when she was boycotted over what she'd written about her dream life. Wait a minute, he doesn't go into the details. He doesn't tell you that she had a nun as a spiritual advisor who led her into, into visualization where she visualized this idiot child with his head rolling over like this. And that was the Christ in her. And so, I mean, I can go on and on about the heresies that are being taught and are not acknowledged. Yes, she's been on radio and her husband and so forth, but let them acknowledge. Let me acknowledge. You point out what, what I'm teaching that's not of the Word of God. Please, correct me. You would be a friend to me. I don't want to go on in error. But these people will not be corrected. It's a fulfillment again. What, what is prophecy about? Well, it's fulfilling. It's telling us something about these days in which we will live. So we will not, will not be discouraged. We will recognize the time in which we will live. And we will recognize some of the dangers. First uh, Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit speaketh expressly. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Well, we've talked about that. Visualization. Visualize this Jesus. Talk to him. He'll talk back to you. Prophecy keeps us from being caught up in the errors of our day. Uh, Chuck referred just briefly to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. If John the Baptist had known that one verse, if the disciples had known that one verse, it would have straightened them out an awful lot. Because Daniel 2.44 says, you know, the, 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 the image and the ten toes, which are ten kings, and it says, in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven establish a kingdom that will never be moved. Wait a minute, there were not ten kings ruling the Roman Empire when Jesus was here. That was not the time for him to set up his kingdom. But John the Baptist, he was all upset, wondering. He lost his faith even. Art thou he that should come, or do I look for another? Because he says, I'm in prison about to get my head cut off, and I ought to be at least prime minister in your kingdom. I introduced you to Israel. How come? If you're going to set up your kingdom, what's, what's going on here? And besides this guy, Herod, he's got all the troops. How, you, you got nothing. Now, how are you going to take David's throne unless you can outdo Herod with all of his troops? And are you really the one that should come? Wait a minute, if you know that one verse. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven establish a kingdom that will never be moved. One day the Antichrist will rule and the world will be divided into ten heads. There will be ten regions under this revived Roman Empire. That's when he will set up that kingdom. And how will he set up that kingdom? Well, as Pat uh, Robertson says, we're going to, the church and a lot of others out there, the church were gradually taking over the world. 
this great revival. And we're going to take over the media. We're going to take over the schools. We're going to take over politics and so forth. Wait a minute. How is it going to happen? A stone cut out without hands smashes the image into powder. And the wind blows it away and it grows into a mountain that fills the earth. There will be a cataclysmic sudden intervention by God himself from heaven. Uh, it's not the church is gradually going to take over. But Lord, when will you establish, uh, restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? It's the hope of every Christian. You had an ad. I'm amazed. Again, I only get these papers when I fly. And yesterday's USA Today, did you see it? In the money section. How about that? It had an ad. I don't know, maybe Peter put this ad in. Christ is coming very, very soon. How to be prepared for history's greatest event. And it said the evidence for the soon return of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. It could be any moment. One scholar lists 167 converging clues. And now it gives you uh, evidence after evidence after evidence uh, for the return of Jesus Christ. USA Today. Amazing. So, prophecy gives us this hope. It tells us we're getting there. It's the great hope of the church. And it also is a warning. Uh, These men are cutting me short now, so I've got to wind it up fast. Uh, Right, two of you up here. It, it, It also is a warning. It's a warning to the world. It's a warning to the church. It's a warning to all of us. But you know, there's hope in the warning. Uh, remember Jonah? You won't find a more certain prophecy in the Bible than the prophecy that God gave Jonah to speak to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. God broke his word. He didn't destroy Nineveh. Why? Because they repented. And he said through Jeremiah, at such time as I pronounce evil upon a people or a nation and they repent, I will repent of the evil. It's not too late. I don't think the world is going to repent. But we need to call upon individuals to repent. We need to get right with this one of whom we sang, How Great Thou Art. And we have a warning to deliver to the world. And if we don't deliver that warning, if we don't warn them of coming judgment and of the return of Christ, then their blood will be upon our hands. So that's another reason for prophecy. Well, there are a lot of reasons for prophecy. That's why we're here. And I just pray that the Lord will impress it upon my heart and upon the hearts of each one of us. And we will take his word and use this more sure word of prophecy for the purpose that it was intended to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to convince them, mightily convince them from the scriptures of God's word and his truth. Thank you. God bless. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.